0: Welcome to today's edition of Daytime Dialogues. It's my honor, my privilege to welcome today Rav Binyamin Zimmerman. Rav Zimmerman, I know in a lot of different contexts, both as the director of World Mizrahi's Musmachim program, where they're giving smicha to young Tamidei chachamim to be able to go out into the world and serve Klal Yisrael, also in his role as the educational director of Tzomet, the Institute of Halacha and Technology, based in Alon Shavut, and also in his role as the founder and director of Hezber, H-E-S-B-E-R.org, an organization that's dedicated to producing very powerful and meaningful educational materials for students and communities, working together with Rev. Rimon and many other people who we know, and we really appreciate that efforts. But today I invited uh, Rev. Zimmerman on because of his work currently, as you can see, in the Rabbanut, in the army in Israel. I visited him a few weeks ago in his post in Shuran, the army base of Shura, which is also the headquarters of the Rabbanuta Rashid, and saw some of the work. And I really want to get started with that with Rev Zimmerman. So thank you so much for joining me, Rav Zimmerman.
1: My pleasure.
0: Now, what most people don't know is just to be able to have this conversation, it took a couple of weeks of working with the spokesman of Sahal, and I appreciate any of them who, all of them who helped make it possible, so I thank them, but I especially want to be able to talk about with you, what's it like, what's the role of a of a Rav in Sahel? We can imagine chaplains in the, in the United States Army, and it's very different. What do you do in the Army?
1: For sure. So a Rav Tzai, somebody who is in the Israeli rabbinate, is a specific role in the rabbinate, the rabbinate is an, a branch of the army, which means that it has soldiers who aren't necessarily rabbis associated with it. Everything related to logistics and even soldiers on the ground. But to be a rabzvai, a rabzvai is like you said, it's a chaplain, but it's a different role than chaplains in many different armies. The rabbi is actually somebody who goes out to the front lines. He's someone who's connected generally to a unit. In order to become a rabbi, you have to go through officer training. And part of that officer training is everything necessary to be an officer in the army, which means, you know, uh, which means navigations, you know, obviously being able to do certain things, you know, uh, regarding general training. And and on top of that, to also have specific training to be able to deal both with the people in the army, with the soldiers, as well as with issues of Jewish law but on top of that the rabbinate also serves all the religious needs of non-religious soldiers and non-Jewish soldiers there are drew soldiers in the army there are Muslim soldiers in the army there are Christian soldiers in the army anyone you know uh, however they define themselves religiously the rabbinate also also deals with their issues the overwhelming majority of the soldiers in the Israeli army are Jews and therefore the rabbinate has a special responsibility to deal with all the issues of uh, Jewish soldiers, but it's really for the entire army.
0: Now, in this, uh, when when we met the last time in Israel, uh, you shared with us the idea that you're part of a team in the Rabbanut that actually addresses halachic issues and tries to be able to formulate positions. Uh, how, in that kind of role, what have been the unique kinds of questions that you've had to address in this war?
1: So as you mentioned, meaning the, in normal life, when I wouldn't be in reserve duty for you know over forty days now, in normal life I do a lot of things related to Jewish education and the like. It's a great privilege I have. In the army, I also have a special privilege that I'm part of the, the what's called the Anaf halakha, the halachic branch of the army. Halachic branch of the army basically is required to produce um, opinions related to Jewish law and sometimes ethics and the like, regarding everything that the army does. Everything the army does includes from the smallest little um, areas that are connected to Jewish law to everything related to wartime, where questions are very different. So if your specific question is what during wartime is different, so everything related to wartime is an area of Jewish law that to a certain degree has been has been lost over the generations. When I mean lost, I mean that even though if one looks in the Torah and the Bible, one can find that uh, Jews who were under attack had armies that could defend themselves, that could defend their way of life. That's something that inclu- can, you know, uh, was definitely present in Jewish history for a long time, but then it just stopped. When the Jews, you know, since the end of the Bar Kokhba revolt, Jews had generally no ability to defend themselves, no army of any kind. And therefore, even the halachic discussions that are associated with wartime, with what you do in a war, are things that were not discussed. Were not discussed by the various authorities. There is no legal continuity of all the great authorities, what we call the Rishonim, who explain passages in the Talmud. The passages that exist regarding war are really not discussed. And therefore, the state of Israel, when the army was founded, had to deal with not only the myriad of questions that are unique to our generation and to, you know, uh, the generations then, which used a lot less technology than we do now. But everything related to what it means to have a Jewish army and how a Jewish army operates and how it operates within the parameters of Jewish law is something that is a strong part of Jewish history but through the exile was not discussed. And therefore part of the responsibility of the army is to bring it back to life. So
0: we know Rav Goran, who was the first chief rabbi of Tzahel, did a lot of work on this and all of the, the subsequent chief rabbis. In this war right now, have there been questions that have, been, that have come up that hadn't come up before?
1: Unfortunately, there are a lot of questions that did not come up that are related to the specific parameters of the tragedy and the massacre that brought about the beginning of this war. I mean, as everyone knows, this is not a war that we were looking for. We tried everything to try to avoid a situation like that. But in the wake of the massacre, so, you know, uh, the responsibility of the rabbinate is to deal with all the fallen soldiers and in situations of, of a great citizen you know, uh, a large amount of citizen deaths like we had now. So the rabbinate also is responsible for dealing with citizens. And without being able to say too much, you know, what's obviously known is that the state of many of the bodies was not things we have seen before. Many if the Secretary of Defense of the United States can say that uh, he's familiar with ISIS and what he saw um, firsthand, the firsthand accounts of him coming to Israel and seeing was far worse than ISIS. So you can imagine there are a lot of different questions that weren't asked just because the level of brutality that that uh, we experienced was something that I guess we could say in the, we're lucky that in the past we weren't familiar with, but unfortunately we're familiar with now.
0: And when we were there a couple of weeks ago, we were there. Were still people, unfortunately, victims who hadn't been identified. Is that still the case?
1: The I'm just trying to figure out exactly what I'm allowed to say. But in general, in general, I'll tell you that there's a difference between soldiers and and uh, citizens. The basic difference is that when a person goes into the Israeli army, the Israeli army is very careful to ensure that it has the greatest chance of identifying anyone. And the whole process of identification throughout the world is a comparison between AM and PM, a comparison between anti-mortem, the signs that you have of a person's identity while they're alive, and post-mortem. So the Army makes sure to have all, anything that can be used to identify somebody after death, the Army makes sure to have on file. That includes fingerprints, that includes a uh, panoramic X-ray of the teeth that includes also the ability to identify someone through their own DNA, not just by comparing it to other things. So therefore, soldiers, the the uh, soldiers in general, we make sure to have a very good chance. There were some still very, very complicated situations of identity, but... but um, but with soldiers, it's much much easier. When dealing with civilians, so civilians is a lot more complicated because civilians, if they don't have a criminal record, you don't necessarily have any record of their fingerprints. And uh, if they were in the army at one time, so there's a good chance that you do, but it also depends when they join, when they join the army, how old they are. Certainly foreigners, we didn't have on file their uh, fingerprints and anything related to that, meaning Hamas did not distinguish between between Jews and Muslims and uh Christians and anyone who they found in their uh in their past. And therefore the situation there is a lot more complicated. Thank God we have been able to do things that are unbelievable, things that in the past, you know, uh would be impossible. And we leave no stone unturned, but it's it's complicated and it's a process. <laughs>
0: Now, one of the things we are hearing is that there's a certain religious rebirth almost in, within uh, soldiers in Sahel and even in the United, even in Israel in general. The idea that people are seeking more religious connections. We we hear about the tens of thousands of pairs of tzitzit that people are asking to wear and, and tefillin that people are asking. Have you seen that? Is that something that's real?
1: It's extremely real i mean if you, if we put it in context i'll tell you first what i can tell you as facts and then i could tell you a little bit about my perception of it but in general the the depth of the tragedy and the massacre and the understanding that people were killed just because they were celebrating in israel not because they were religious not because they were they were what's called settlers people who simply we're living in the land of israel in a place people came from communities where every day they used to drive uh drive people from aza to hospitals and they were killed ruthlessly by the same people who they actually drove to these hospitals when people come to that level of confrontation of evil so they start realizing all the reasons always given for what was the behind this conflict? None of them applied in this case. None of them applied, and still there was ruthless, ruthless treachery, barbarism that is really unparalleled in uh, in in much of human his, history. And with that awakening, number one, there was a question: What's this all about? What is, you know, what is the difference? Well, they clearly see a tremendous difference between us and them. So what is it that we stand for? But I think it's even more than that. And that is that when people go to war and when a country is mobilized, so everyone who goes to war to defend their people, their country, recognizes that there is a chance they're not going to come back alive. And when a person knows that they're fighting for something, they're putting their life on the line. So it raises the question, what, what am I really Fighting for? When am I putting my life on the line? And there are many questions that we push to the side of the back of our head and we're unwilling to deal with in general. And then we are awakened to a question well, what is it really that I stand for? And when we don't have the answers to those questions, so then we start soul searching and we start searching. There's a lot written in Israel of late of individuals who, you know, uh, are first coming to terms with the fact that, wow, I'm a Jew. I don't exactly know what that means. I'm not just an Israeli. I'm a Jew. There's 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 something about being a Jew. And I, I'd like to know a little bit more about it. How is it seen? So it's seen because the rabbinate, even though it's the branch of the army that's responsible for all the fallen soldiers, it's also the branch who's responsible for the live soldiers. And when they have questions and when they seek out. And for that very reason, the the... There has been a thirst for knowing, for learning about Judaism. There's been a thirst for different, you know, different elements of Judaism. Tzitzit, right? Fringes that that people wear. And generally, is worn primarily by observant soldiers. Is the biggest commodity in the army. The army makes special tzitzit that are that are green. They're made by a special material that is, you know, uh, pretty resistant to sweating. The ideal type of undershirt you would wear that is also made to be tzitzit, and this is something that they, you know, every tzitzit that is made goes right out. There is a long line of people who have never worn it before, who don't wear a keep on their head, but yet realize this is something that sounds that 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 identifies me as a Jew. Right, the Torah describes this as something. Through this, you'll remember all the mitzvot and therefore it's something that not only Jewish soldiers but even non-Jewish soldiers have requested so this is clearly something that protects and I want it I I want as well and we we can't provide enough that's connected to everything related to mitzvah with a safer torah to be ability to bring a torah out for the soldiers to be able to read the soldiers to be able to bring into battle are things that that the requests are way beyond what we're able what we're able to provide.
0: Can you give an idea of the uh, of the amount, uh, the numbers of pairs of tzitzit? People were asking for sets of tzitzit or pairs of tefillin. Do you have that offhand?
1: I can tell you that we had on reserve um, around 30,000 pairs of tzitzit. Within a few days, those were all finished. Since then, we've had wonderful people throughout the world who have volunteered to tie tzitzit, to donate tzitzit, and every pair goes out as quickly as, as as quickly as we get it. We've put out um definitely over 80,000 pairs. We have requests of tens of thousands more, tens of thousands more. It's not something we can we can keep up with the request.
0: So does every unit in the army have a RAV who's associated with them, or does the revenue serve multiple units, multiple groups?
1: So those who are trained to be a rabbi in the army, so part of what every reserve unit, every unit who's in the army has, has an officer at the battalion level, at the base level, um, on every single base, and you know, in charge of certain areas. Every gedud miluim, it's called in Hebrew, every battalion of reserve soldiers also has a reserve officer associated with them. Now, that's the way it works. It's not always that there are enough rabbis to fill all the different roles. However, once, you know, so there may have been certain parts of the army that did not have reserve soldiers, uh, did not have a rabbi associated with them. But as soon as the war began, every single unit that did not have a rabbi asked for them, asked for rabbis who had retired or the like, you know, who were had not yet been placed in units. Everyone wanted a rabbi, both to deal with um, fallen soldiers, if God forbid there would be, but also to deal with live soldiers. To deal with all the soldiers who are thirsty for knowing more about what it means to be part of uh, to be part of the Jewish people. So, are you
0: are you associated with also a battalion, or you're working out of the central office, the central uh, camp, the military camp of Shura, working within? So, the...
1: Bigger. Picture. Exactly. So I work with the central command, which gives me there's a plus and a minus. I mean, the plus is that I get to work with a lot of different units. I mean, we we were intimately involved in a lot of different units. The minus is that we're not associated with a specific unit, which means that, you know, uh, getting to know all the individual soldiers the way a rabbi in a specific unit would be able to do that. We don't have the ability, but we do deal with a gamut of uh of soldiers throughout the army.
0: Now, we also heard that there was a large sign-up from the Haredi community to join the army when after the massacre. Is that something you've been you've seen
1: as well? There definitely are a good number, a good number of of people from the Haredi community who saw, who wanted to be a part of the army, for sure. Some of them have even been, you know, uh, connected to the rabbinate after they finished their basic training, ba- very basic, basic training. But um, for sure, there's a tremendous amount of thirst of people who feel that the army is a place where they can really connect to the Jewish people as a whole, really connect to the state of Israel, really, even if they're not necessarily in positions that put their lives on the line, they're definitely in positions where they're able to connect with people throughout the country.
0: And when you're interacting with soldiers, when you're doing what you've been doing now for the 40 plus days, is there something that... You encountered that has kept you going has inspired you more than anything else.
1: It's a very good question. I'll tell you that one thing I think about. I mean, you're you're speaking to me from America. I'm here in Israel. The the let's say over time there were Jewish soldiers. Jewish soldiers were primarily soldiers in non-Jewish armies. So two of uh, my grandfather was part of the U.S. Navy in World War II. He was on a Navy destroyer escort at the USS Fisk, which was shot down. And um, he was miraculously saved in, um, in that encounter and was able to save a lot of people's lives in the process. Earned the Purple Heart and was in a hospital for a long time after. And that was his opportunity to be a part of defending the Jewish people. And that's on my mother's side, my father's side. My father's uncle, my grandmother's brother, was a navigator in a flying fortress in World War II, which was shot down and he was killed in the process of, of doing his most to be able to defend the Jewish people as an American soldier. And one thing I think about often is in the past, it had to be with friendly armies who were who identified with the value system and wanted to fight evil, the only way for a Jew to really be a part of it was to be a part of an army of another country. Now, we have the opportunity of doing it as part of an army of our own country. And therefore, you know, uh, one of the things that really connects is when you connect to through questions that the rabbinate receives and through issues that we deal with in all areas of jewish life and you see how special the israeli army how moral the israeli army the ethical decisions that are made the high level of of you know questions you wouldn't believe anyone would ask but these are people asking soldiers who are more merciful than anyone can imagine and you say to yourself It's such an opportunity to be a part of such a special group of people, such a special army.
0: And I read recently a response from Rav Rimon to someone who asked if when they were capturing uh, homes and other things, if there were there was valuables within the homes, are they allowed to take those homes and donate them for um, purposes for the soldiers to be able to support the soldiers? And Rav Rimon said not to do so. Because we don't want anyone to think that we're in this war because we're trying to profit from the war, that's the kind of high moral grounds. Is there something halachically which you've also encountered that? Ill- I'd,
1: I'd say I, I, that that's a small example. That's that's something which is relatively straightforward. Soldiers are not not able to take anything, not even the smallest, the smallest bit. But I I I'll give you a story that uh, that came from uh, actually someone who was connected to our unit. He's a citizen who works for the army, which means that he doesn't wear a uniform. And he was walking on Shabbat where he lives right near Shari Tzedek Hospital in Bayt Fagan, And he saw a soldier there um, on Shabbat, on the Sabbath, who was looking at a car and goes over to him and says, do you know who the owner of that car is? He said, I don't know. He said, well, Maybe the person looked like a rabbi, um, but he didn't know exactly who he was. He, meaning, he didn't know that he was a rabbi associated with the army. And he said, he said to him, "You know, I was just in aza in Gaza, for thirty days. The first time I got out is now because my wife gave birth in Shari Tzadik Hospital, and I only got out for a few hours. And you can imagine, I haven't slept in a long time. Someone lent me their car." And I went and I I parked the car and I think I had a I think I scratched this car a little bit. Now I'm just going to have to leave before the Sabbath ends, and I want to know how I can notify the person whose car this belongs to uh, that if this is a scratch that I made, I want to pay for it. This is you know uh, the levels of the soldiers who. Maybe the world portrays in a different way, but these are soldiers who the smallest amount of damage that they could cause, which probably they didn't even cause, certainly under the circumstances of somebody missing the birth of his child and coming back on no sleep in a long time to be able, I'm sure whoever the owner is would not even be concerned with this small little scratch. But these are the questions that people are asking.
0: And. In, in terms of what we can do in the United States to support the chayalim that you 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 encounter, to support the the rabbis in the uh, in Sahal as well, what is the most important thing we can do?
1: So number one, I think the most important thing is to care. Most important thing is to care and to connect, and to recognize that we're in it. We're in this together. Well, we we view ourselves as representatives, certainly of the Jewish state, but also the Jewish people, and also all the people from other faiths who who are connected and 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 who identify and support. That's I'd say number one, the most important part, both within tefillah and prayers, and with everything connected to to uh, the legitimacy of the effort. And at the same time, the importance of the effort, the importance not only for the state of Israel and not only for the Jews around the world, but really for the world itself. So I think that's number one. In terms of other particular things, I think some of the most beautiful opportunities of of people who are volunteers, people who come and, you know, will give to soldiers a shirt off their back, not because they need it, but because... They feel so connected. And um, I think within that context, a lot of things that we've been able to provide for soldiers, tzitzit, are things that people donated with their time. I mean, they stood there with their time to learn how to tie tzitzit, to tie them on behalf of a soldier. I think when a soldier receives that, it's not only that he receives a pair of tzitzit, he receives a hug from somebody who spent their time in order to be able to do this. At the same time, everything you know, uh, everything that the raven has been able to provide, a lot of that has been through donations. We've we, we've received donations of caring people, and again, it's it's not the donation as much as the fact that people go and show their concern.
0: What do you think about the letters that that um, that children are writing to Chayalim? Has that had a, an impact on them? On the Chayalim? I can tell
1: you, last night. Last night, there was something on the base where some people came and volunteered and, and brought some, uh, made a barbecue for, for the soldiers on the base late at night. And uh, they also, a number of them were teachers. There were people who came together to volunteer. They came from different places. A number of them were teachers. And they brought letters from their students. And, uh, you know, you see a nice little letter. These are from Israeli students. But it definitely definitely warms the heart Um, and I think it has an effect not only on the soldiers but also on the students. I can tell you that one thing that happened which was beautiful last night was that one of the people who came was a a teacher in a school and saw an old student of hers on the base and uh, was actually not a student who was in her class but someone who was good friends with everyone in the class and um, because of that, they knew each other. And it was a wonderful, heartbreaking, you know, um, connection between somebody who had an effect on someone earlier in life. And now was coming to to give something to, you know, to brighten their day after a very hard, long day, long day of work.
0: I, I, I've seen it myself when I was handing out letters to Chayalim, how much it seemed to mean to them. And the volunteerism is extraordinary. I don't. I didn't have a chance to tell you. I'm actually bringing the senior class of Ida Crown Jewish Academy in Chicago to volunteer for a month, right after wow. we're going. And so we may we may bump into you in, in one of the the many roles you have. But it's important that we have that outlet as well because we want to help and we want to do whatever we can. Uh, in, in terms of just we have just a little bit of time left. In terms of the the day to day work that you do also with other faiths. How does, the, how does a rab Tzfai, a rabbi and minister, I guess, to, to a Muslim, to a Christian, to a Druze, who's a Christian? How does that work?
1: So I say, first of all, anyone who's a part of the army identifies with a value system that is often shared by, uh, by Judaism and others. I mean, it's a value system that stands for you know the sacredness of life when soldiers go into war, they know it's one for all and all for one. There's no you know, it's often referred to as blood brothers. And therefore, the focus is not on what distinguishes us from one another, but rather what connects us to one another. And therefore, with that, meaning as a general rule, um it's not necessarily true in all the reserve units, but definitely in the in the in the units where there are younger soldiers, those who, meaning the rab tzva'i is somebody who's older. And somebody who's older, has a little more life experience, and people might come to them out of the context of uh, being a religious figure, but just someone who has a little more life experience, a little more, you know, um, yeah, someone who's uh, a little bit, you know, someone who they could look to as somebody who might be able to help them out of the context of religion, and those who are interested, in also a religious angle, they're also able to provide that.
0: One of we're, our time is really wrapping up right now, but one of the amazing things in this conversation, Rabbi Zimmerman, is the fact that uh, of the warmth and the calm that you project, and uh, when you look at the news in the, in the United States, unfortunately, it isn't always of Israeli soldiers with that kind of warmth and understanding, which I know we believe all of the soldiers have, before a soldier goes out to war, do you ever have to, or goes into Gaza, do you ever find yourself having to give them a bracha?
1: So I say one of the the things that's very special that is in Jewish tradition is a special tefillah, a special prayer that's said before going into war. You know, uh, Jews throughout the centuries have been warred against. There have been pogroms, and Jewish history is full of, unfortunately, many, many experiences where Jews were not in a position to defend themselves. And therefore, this tefillah was not said. Most of the, uh, if anything was said before, it was before being attacked, the bracha, the blessing that's said when somebody is willing to give up their life to sanctify God's name. But as the Rambam Maimonides tells us, that when you go out to war, that's another way of sanctifying God's name. It's another way of saying that we stand for a value system that if people are going to attack us, we're going to have to be able to defend ourselves and defend our way of life. And therefore, the Rambam's language, on the oneness and the sanctification of God's name, a person goes out to war. And therefore, there's a special tefillah. They don't need us to make a tefillah for them. They might ask us to provide it. But it is a special tefillah which is connected to Jewish history throughout, and the ability to defend our way of life. Sometimes it seems that some people in the world often preferred where the Jews didn't have that ability, but uh, having that ability, wearing wearing the uniform connected to that, it's something I think my grandfathers in the American Army would be very, uh, American Navy would be very proud of. My uncle was in the Air Force my great uncle would be very proud of. And um, it's an opportunity that I'm privileged to have.
0: Zimmerman, I want to thank you for your time. I give thanks again to the Dovret Sahal who permitted you to speak to us today. Wish you great Hatzlecha and please God, the mission that you are on should be successful and Claudia Yisrael should find a Yeshua's salvation. at By the end of this war, we look forward to seeing some of the hostages released and again, thank you for all you do and for this this interview as well. Have a wonderful day. And please, thank you
1: very much for the opportunity. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.